0: You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. A Life of Jesus by Melva Perkins, episode 42. This episode is called We Would See Jesus. After Jesus's triumphant entry into Jerusalem, the city became polarised in its opinion of him and his teaching. Therefore, precious time was devoted to warnings, prophecies, parables, all directed specifically to encourage his disciples through their trials that were to lay ahead. At this time, Jesus was particularly moved by a message from a group of Gentiles, we would see Jesus, they said. Jesus saw this approach as symbolic, a foretaste of the worldwide awakening soon to come to the glory of God's name. He would be lifted up that all men, Jews and Gentiles, might be drawn unto him. The Father's voice from heaven confirmed and encouraged the Son's prayer Father, glorify thy name. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again.
1: A life of Jesus A devotional study by Melva Perkis Book 7, Chapter 8 We Would See Jesus Spent by the intensity of his rebuke of Israel's rulers, Jesus passed from the courts and ascended the steps which led to the temple itself. Sinking down on the topmost step with his disciples around him, he was able to look out across the court of the women, its vast colonnades enclosing an area where 15,000 worshippers could assemble. The time of sacrifice was over, but many remained to view with wonder the beautiful buildings or engage in private devotion and offering. Spaced round the columned terraces were the great trumpet-shaped offertory boxes allocated to their several purposes. With that lively interest in men, which is such a clearly delineated characteristic in the Gospels, Jesus watched the people approaching the treasury boxes to cast in their offerings. He saw lordly men make their ostentatious gifts, He watched rich men give of their superfluity. He noticed others who came quietly past and gave cheerfully with an obvious sense of privilege. But one fear held his attention. She was alone and in mourning. It was painfully evident from her appearance that she was among the desperately poor. Almost afraid to mingle with the other worshippers, she paused for a moment and then went purposefully forward and dropped into the treasury the two mites, which represented the smallest offering legally acceptable. Her gift presented to God, she went away and was lost in the crowd. After the relentless conflict of the last few hours, this was a refreshing sight. Jesus turned to his disciples, Verily I say unto you, This poor widow hath cast more in than all they that have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. The woman went to her lonely home and her meagre fare, oblivious of the one who had watched her. To have known that her two mites had been singled out would have covered her with confusion. Had she suspected that she had been contrasted favourably with the wealthy and the great, she would never have understood. But her humble gift, like Mary's precious perfume, has shed its fragrance down the years. It is easy to make offerings to the Lord which cost us little or nothing. The poor woman's meagre gift was the greatest of all because it was so real a sacrifice. In the light of Christ's judgment, there are probably few of us who have given much. There may be some of us who have never really given anything, but there are those who have. Many mites have since been added to the two that fell into the temple treasury, offerings rich in their meagerness because they represented all the giver had to give. For the most part those gifts have remained unnoticed amid the welter of more obvious givings. Where they are discovered they are sometimes scorned. But there is an unseen watcher who sees and knows. And in the fullness of time those children of the kingdom, whose poverty has excluded them from so many material blessings, will be welcomed by the one who became poor, that they might be rich. Before Jesus left the temple, a company of Greeks sought an audience with him through Philip. We know little about these men, but it seems that they were not proselytes, but heathens who were not allowed to pass beyond the court of the Gentiles in their search for Jesus. Many such came to Jerusalem at the time of Passover, inspired by differing motives. Whatever may have been the reason for the request, these men assumed an almost prophetic character foreshadowing the longings of successive generations of Gentiles from every corner of the earth. Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip, once more lacking in decisiveness, spoke to Andrew and together they approached Jesus. Whether the desire was satisfied we do not know. We see the effect upon the Lord. To him it was symbolic. As the Jews were about to slay him, the Gentiles, travelling from afar, desire to come to him. Their call will one day be answered. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. The hour had come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He was about to seal in his blood the claims he had made to the world, and the promises he had given to his disciples, and in doing so to show them by his death that he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. Yet even as he spoke, the darkness of the coming hours entered into his soul. All that was human in him cried out against the terrible ordeal that was about to assail his young, glowing manhood and sweep him to an untimely grave. Even whilst our hearts weep in loving sympathy, we are grateful for this revealing outburst. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Yet his spiritual resources were sufficient. In an instant they asserted themselves, putting aside the natural desires of his heart. But for this cause came I to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. With the declaration of submission to the will of God came the answering call from his Father, bringing with it comfort and strength. I have both glorified it, And will glorify it again." The people heard the voice but could not distinguish the message. Some said it thundered, others more discerning that an angel had spoken to him. But Jesus said the voice was for them rather than for him. His father could have communicated encouragement through the silences into his heart. But now the whole world stood at the bar of judgment the events of the next hours would determine its destiny. Yet it was already determined. The last three years had shown that although the Messiah had come to his own, his own had received him not. The final tragedy was the last inevitable act in the drama of renunciation. Once more his thoughts soared above the hatred which was bringing him to his death and return to the glory of his Father's purpose. And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. He made a last appeal to his countrymen. Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while ye have the light. While ye have the light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light nor can we believe that he spoke in vain but even now his enemies were only prevented from taking him by the loyalty of those who hung upon his words at night when their protection was removed he stayed arrest by his retirement to bethany and to the mount of olives the lamb of god would not be slain before the Passover, nor before the sacred communion of the upper room. The contrast between the feelings of Jesus as he left the temple for the last time and the thoughts of the disciples throws a poignant light upon the darkened minds of the twelve. In that light we are able to discern something of the loneliness of the Saviour. To him the stately building must have spoken of the obstinacy and pride of man, blinded by his own self-sufficiency to the grace of God, and oblivious of his impending doom. Its imposing strength was full of menace for him. It filled him not with fear, but with sadness. Its ministers were about to enjoy their triumph, the triumph of a form of godliness that denied the power, the triumph of man's selfishness, hypocrisy and greed. But it was to be a bloody victory. Generations yet unborn would reap banishment, persecution and despair. But as the disciples looked up at its commanding beauty and watched the evening sun gilding its colonnades, they had very different thoughts. They were filled only with the awe at its strength and rejoiced in its magnificent. Master, they said, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Gently Jesus led them from the danger of being deceived, by the imposing nature of material things. Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. As the evening shadows lengthened, they made their way out to the Mount of Olives. Perplexed and humbled by his answer, they asked him a twofold question. Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the world? In what has become known as the Olivet Prophecy, Jesus answered these two questions. In these years we have naturally made use of it as evidence of the nearness of our Lord's return. Such emphasis may tend to divert us from its more urgent personal message. Jesus set forth conditions attending the end of both the Jewish and the Gentile dispensations, but the greater part of his words is devoted to the hearts and minds of the disciples. For them it is full of warning and encouragement. Jesus confessed that neither he nor the angels knew the exact time or season of his return. In a sense, it was not an important question. Many children of the kingdom would live and die outside its orbit, Our lives must not be absorbed with speculation, but with preparation. Jesus spoke to the twelve of events shortly to come to pass. They must not be deceived or deterred by false Christs arising among them. He spoke of coming turmoil and bloodshed, to be preceded by their own persecution and suffering. They must not waver under trial it would be a testimony that they were following their Lord. He turned to their second question and told them of the distress which would overtake the whole earth before his return, of the tumultuous roaring of peoples which we have grown to know so well, the eclipse of kings, the frantic strivings of statesmen to find the solution to situations from which there would be no way out. He spoke of the terror of the inhabitants of the earth as they recognised the relentless menace of powers they were unable to control. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, he said, raising his eyes above the tensely listening disciples and addressing us over the centuries, Then look up, and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. And now his discourse turns from the world with its cares and troubles, and Jesus speaks only to his own. He speaks of the dangers lurking in these difficult days for them. They would be like the days before the flood, when men lived only for themselves, and were preoccupied with the cares of this life. Watch ye therefore, and pray always, that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass, and to stand before the Son of Man. He told them the parable of the ten virgins, leaving with them the sober vision of the closed door, and the echo of the sentence which barred forever from the joys of the kingdom, verily i say unto you i know you not he told them the parable of the talents with its emphasis not upon ability but upon zeal he drew for them a picture of the kingdom taken from their own familiar scene as a shepherd divided the sheep from the goats at the end of the day so when the son of man comes in his glory he separates the righteous from the wicked The separation will be determined by works. To the righteous he will say, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was an hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me in prison, and ye came unto me." The righteous will answer, When did we all these things? Inasmuch their Lord will reply, As ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. To the wicked he will say, Depart from me ye cursed, Their refusal of that ministering love for their brethren had made their protestations of love for their Lord empty professions. These, Jesus concluded, shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto life eternal. This picture which Jesus painted does not imply that good works are a substitute for faith and belief. Those qualities are postulated already, but it demonstrates the tragic futility of a belief which fails to respond to the stimulus of men's need. However great our knowledge of God's word, however penetrating our discernment of Christ's gospel of the kingdom, it will only serve to condemn us. If it fails to inspire an active response in following Him who came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, Christ alone will be the judge of that. There are many wonderful works done in His name. There are many eloquent testimonies given. They are often necessary and their motive often pure. But they are the most dangerous form of service because. Being seen of men, there is great danger that they may carry with them their own reward. Under the stimulus of man's approbation, it is easy for the motive to lose something of its dedication. The cup of cold water is not so susceptible to that danger. It does not move multitudes. It just brings sunlight into some obscure life. It warms the heart of one of Christ's little ones who has been trembling in the coldness of the world's exposure. It turns poverty into riches, imprisonment into freedom, sickness unto health. Whether the ministration is physical or spiritual, it matters not. The disciple follows one who healed both body and soul. Succour given in the Spirit of Jesus radiates beyond the body and fills the heart, preparing it for the spiritual blessings which are waiting to follow.